0: Hello and welcome to The Close-Up, the official podcast of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Uh, My name is Michael Kreski. I'm the editorial director at the Film Society. And I have some very special guests with me today to talk about the New York Film Festival in its 56th year. And um, I'll let them introduce themselves, but we have two uh, very illustrious people who work on the selection committee for the New York Film Festival. (laughs) And unfortunately, we don't have Florence Almazini, who's also on the selection committee, but she'll be back for the festival. And you can uh, pester her when you see her in person. Until then, please introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm Kent Jones, the director of the festival.
1: And I'm Dennis Lim, uh, director of programming at the Film Society.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, thanks for being here. Uh, It makes perfect sense to start with opening night, I think. And this year, I think we have a particularly exciting, interesting, and strange choice. Yorgos Lanthimos is the favorite, a film that I enjoyed very much. I'd love to hear what you guys thought of it when you first saw it and thought, this is an opening night film. You think it's strange? (laughs) I think it's an interesting choice in a good way. I I mean, I've I've enjoyed all of his films to a certain extent. I think Mm -hmm. this one's maybe a little more accessible, perhaps, but it still has all of those strange kind of fetishistic touches that one would think of when you think of Lanthimos.
2: I mean... It's like his other movies, but different um and I think it has to do with the uh fact that it's a period piece mm-hmm. uh because I think he's really invested in turning the period piece doing something with the genre ra- yeah. right oh, yeah. turning it into something yeah. else, and yeah. so
1: reimagining it yes like kind of but also like kind of pulling it apart, it's like kind of a desecration of a period piece, I think, and it's like it doesn't you know it's it's it I think fulfills all the functions like all the intrigue and all the things you want from from a film like that. But it's also I think uh, yes. quite subversive in terms of yeah. how it observes these these power dynamics. Um, it's also th- wildly entertaining, very funny, uh, brilliantly acted. Yeah. Uh, I think it has a, a trio of truly great performances yeah. at the center. And I think yeah, your point about Lantimos being a director with a very particular tone. Um, kind of this cool, you know, um, sardonic, um, somewhat cynical idea of like human behavior. And I think it's something that, that transfers really well, uh, to, to the genre. Can you get a little
0: explanation of the setting and the story here?
2: Queen Anne and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, there are people who actually existed,
1: although (laughs) (laughs) Baroque era.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the intrigue, uh, between Queen Anne and Lady Marlborough. It's court intrigue, but specifically between the three women and it's power games transferred to sexual power games between the three of them. And really, you know, who's going to wield the most power within England at a time when they're at war um, with France. And I think that you know, one of the things that I found most intriguing about the movie uh, in terms of this question of period, as Dennis said, you know, it's, it's reimagining the period film. When, he con- when he'll when he suddenly cut to this kind of fisheye lens, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which occurs at very unexpected intervals throughout the movie, you're looking suddenly from no one's point of view at all uh, uh, for, That's through a, a distorting lens yeah. um, that kind of suggests concave mirrors, But that also seems like you know it's as if this is the world as it actually is distorted and you know out of balance. And often the
0: camera will kind of pivot once it cuts to that, and you get almost like you get this different perspective on the same shot. Like you'll have this fisheye lens shot of a hallway, and then the camera will kind of pan one way, and it'll give you this whole other. Disorienting sense Like I, w- I was Consistently disoriented By this film yeah. yeah In a good way In a good way um, yeah. Especially because it's, it's a studio film Which is also Really interesting And I would say It's sort of uh, dar- It has a daring Conclusion for a studio film Of course we're not Going to give away What that is mm-hmm. um, it, it kind of lets Lanthimos be Lanthimos There's a The sense of everything Kind of
2: well Dissolving It's his movie I, I You know From start to finish yeah, I don't I think, think so. It yeah. feels just as, as Personal as As Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Lobster, but I suppose yeah. it's it's splashier, funnier, and just as dark. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a, it's very it's a lively movie and a pitch black one at the same yeah, time. Yeah,
1: I think. But to your point, I think it's a film that's going to play. I hope, and I think it will play very well, because yeah, like we, we were tremendously entertained when yep. we watched it. So. One thing
0: about uh, Lanthimos' films usually is you're kind of dropped into the center of a world, and you slowly have to adjust and mm-hmm. figure out what the rules are. And there's, there's usually very strict rules, if you think yep. of
1: which is what this world is too so it's pretty
0: much what this right it is. feels it's kind called. of like he's yeah. taking that idea yeah. of the lobster or alps or dog tooth mm-hmm. and he's applying it to um yeah like you say a period piece a film that you think you understand going in but he's constantly taking you out of it making you um
1: and and what he's good at is you know creating these rules but also like m- noting the absurdity of these rules you know which is i think what he's doing to a large extent here
0: well, um, to move on to the centerpiece film, um, I th- I would say very different in style <laughs> from this film. Um, I'm trying to think of a good term. It's Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. Um, I, for lack of a better term, I would call it a more... Aesthetically stately film, perhaps it's there's you know lots of master shots and lots of amazing things happening in single takes as Korone is wont to do. But it's also it feels very different for him. I'm 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 going to say I think it's his greatest film, not just because it seems like the most personal film he's made, but there's just um there's there's a level of of attention to detail here, without the usual I don't know for lack of a better term showiness.
1: I think. I think it's an. Int- I mean, I think the, the tension between like showiness and restraint is quite interesting in this film. I mean, it's absolutely spectacular and like you know, I think a, a stunning spectacle in terms of how he works with image and sound. And he's always been a brilliant, I think, like you know, craftsman and technician. Um, but there is like I think like this sort of countervailing kind of modesty and restraint in terms of what the film is about and these sort of the moods and emotions that he's he's working with. And I think that's what makes it so effective and so interesting
2: well I mean yes it's an epic of everyday life and it's tuned to the rhythms of everyday life I get your point about master shots but I would hesitate to call them master shots just because I think that what they are is I mean that's what the film is in a way Um, it's you're just looking at life the rhythm of life as it is lived by this family um, in Mexico City as it's in the process of coming apart and where the center is held by the live-in nanny maid. Um, That's an amazing performance that that woman gives, and I'm not remembering her name right now. She's a... It's a first-time actress. A newcomer to cinema. She's just incredible. But the movie wherever the camera is you also feel because of the way that he works with the sound the presence of the entire world i mean it's it's like you know it's a small it's a it's a great big movie that starts with small things um from a purely technical standpoint by the way in terms of you know i've been to mexico city a few times you have as well and i mean i I, don't know, I can't pretend to know the landscape of it really well and the differences between now and the early 70s, but I'm sure that they're vast. I'm sure that every sound that he's using and also that every vision that you have of the streets is completely altered and it's seamless. I mean, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of digital, you know, that there's a lot of work done on the image in this movie, which is incredible black and white, um, but um, I could not for the life of me see where it's happening. I mean, you, you
0: speak of um, you know, authenticity is always a tricky thing to talk about in film because, you know, who really knows? You're in, and he's recreating memories and things from his past. But I guess what makes, it, what makes any great piece of cinema really work is while you're watching it, you believe that everything you're watching is completely authentic. And I've, I mean, I, the attention to detail in this film and also the way that he's able to invest each of those details with such an importance while you're watching it, you, you you pick up on every single sound, every single yeah. um, you know detail in the house. What's happening in the? I don't want to give too much away. What's happening in the garage? Mm-hmm. Is it's things that you just can't get out of your head. The way that water moves across pavement. Yes. Um, I, I. I. It's a consistently surprising film. Mm-hmm. I would say, and I think that's a rarity <laughs> these days.
2: Yeah, and it, the last thing. I mean. <laughs> When we sat and watched it, even Florence Florence and I remember we actually stayed just till the very, 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 very last moment. Um, you're, it's a fixed shot. You're seeing planes passing overhead. Yeah. The last thing you see on the screen are the words shanti, shanti, shanti. So we know, <laughs> you know, that's that's a giveaway as to what where he's tuned, but that's already in the movie anyway. And I think that these moments, like with the garage, you know, that's the father parking the car because the, the garages are too small for the cars, and the the father knows exactly how to park the car. The mother doesn't. That moment, or the moment where she goes to the camp where the men are training to look for the, yeah. you know, the old boyfriend, um, there, where the film gets into slightly magical territory, but then it doesn't really go. It it, it just hints at it. Um, and that's kind of remarkable too because there is something magical about the film, Um, and those moments just sort of counterpoint and enliven the the rest of the movie.
0: And uh, I guess we should say, we don't have to, but we could say, this is a Netflix release, Mm -hmm. and so this is a film that people will be able to see at home, but it's really a film that I believe we recommend that people see on the biggest screen possible. It's really quite a spectacle.
2: I think the filmmaker would agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is that it's, it's like uh, this year with interviews, I mean, you know, I've been getting all these questions about Netflix and, you know, because of what happened with Khan this year with the, them deciding that they couldn't show any Netflix films, reversing their position from the previous year, yeah. right? Which meant that they didn't show Roma, they didn't show the Orson Welles film, they didn't show a whole bunch of movies. And I think that, you know, that's a, situation that's quite specific to france but here you know streaming is just becoming more and more that's where people see movies i mean you know no one should have any illusions about that that's just the way that it is but the great thing is that netflix is supporting filmmakers they're giving people you know and i
1: think they are giving this film a theatrical release if i'm not mistaken so i feel like that you know this this film will be seen in cinemas by by many more people too Yes, they are. I, I'm. I'm not sure
0: yet how limited that's going to be, or you know what parts of the United States that's going to be possible. Mm. Um, so, my point is, I just do recommend people recommend that people try to see it. Well, the great the thing is that it can, can
2: be seen on a screen, and the great thing is that the people, the the filmmakers that they're supporting, are making movies the way that they want to make them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Marty Scorsese is making The Irishman. You know, with with them, they've got good taste. <laughs> And there are a few other Netflix movies in this festival
0: that we can touch upon in a bit. But before that, um, I also just wanted to finish off the gala slots by talking about Julian Schnabel's At Eternity's Gate, which is um, a Van Gogh film. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm going to rely on you guys. Well, it's a
2: Van Gogh film. And it's one in a string of Van Gogh films. I mean, you know, so, you know, beginning with, with Lust for Life. I mean, jean Renoir wanted to make a Van Gogh film. He couldn't. Alain la Rene made this beautiful documentary in the early 50s about Van Gogh. Um, Vincent Minnelli made Lust for Life. Um, Paul Cox made his film, you know, with the readings of Van Gogh's letters by John Hurt. Um, Robert Altman made Vincent Theo uh, Maurice Piala made Van Gogh, which is, you know, an incredible film, but to me, not very much a film about Vincent Van Gogh, almost more of a self-portrait, I think, but a great film. And then, you know, now there's Julian's film about Van Gogh. And I have to say that it's like Julian's, they all, they're all good. And I think Julian's film is like a film that only a painter could have made about Van Gogh. It puts me in mind of, of, um, of Basquiat, his first film, because he has, there's a very particular connection that he feels to to Van Gogh and to Basquiat. And it's, you know, and and I think that, you know, I always think Willem Dafoe is very good, that he was, you know, excellent in the Florida project last year. In this film, he's just mesmerizing, you know, because he gets every dimension of Van Gogh. But it's, you know, it's, you you get the spiritual dimension, you get the um, the the madness, but you also get the the work that he put in as a painter, and that's something that doesn't. It's almost absent in the PLO film. Um, it's it's there in the Altman film, but it's sort of like compromised by the madness. Same in Lust for Life. But yeah, Lust for one, Life seems like it's mostly about
0: about that yeah, about yeah. the madness. Of course the imagery apes the beauty and the color of of van gogh's work in lust for life but yeah. it doesn't it's, it's not about the work itself
2: yeah this one is and it's also very very rooted in the place um you know uh, i mean he was you know in, in an early morning light i think or late afternoon light um and uh that's a very particular thing about this movie. But it's very lengthy scenes where you're really feeling the place and you're really feeling his connection to the place and his desire to paint it.
0: Well, just speaking of painterly images, I actually kind of wanted to move along to um, a main slate title that I know you believe and I believe everyone should see. Those. Dying to find out what it is. <laughs> Everybody should see everyone should Everyone should see this one especially, right. even though it might not seem to be everyone's cup of tea, which is the latest... Jean-Luc Godard film, oh. the image book, and should I'm the everyone's cup
2: of tea. Yeah, It should be, go. of
0: course. Yeah. Um, I just saw it for the first time. Take your wives so and I'm, children, and your yeah. No, I mean, I'm actually really excited right now to talk about it because I just saw it. I was mesmerized, as I have been by his, you know, the lat, the films of his last. The last ten years, and it's always exciting with an, another one because you always assume that you just saw the last one. Well, because they also kind like... of
1: feel like last yeah. films. They're yeah. kind of like the sort of like last testament feel to like the last yeah. few, certainly. And I think this one, maybe even more so, I would say.
2: It, it feels that way. Yeah, I mean, physically, in the in the sound of his voice and the grain of his voice, you can really feel mortality, and he's really laying it bare. The thing that's amazing in the film is the way that he... It's been a while now since he's been in that saying goodbye and figuring out what he's saying goodbye to, what the film is saying goodbye to. I feel, you know, himself, the cinema, the film itself, how does everything come to an end? And there are images that he's just been working with over and over again from other people's movies, beginning with Estrella Cinéma, that figure prominently in this movie and most prominently is the image of the dancer in the first episode of Le Plaisir by Ophuls, the exhausted dancer. And um, he uses it to really, really haunting effect in this film.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, these filmmakers who have these, like, long, late phases. I mean, like, you know, someone like Oliveira, for instance, was, like, saying goodbye for decades, you know. Yes. And, and in a in a very different mode from Godard. But to come back yeah. to the image book, I, I, I actually haven't seen it since Cannes. And I, I did a, a, a podcast, a film comment podcast with Nick, I think, like, the day of the screening. And I felt completely ill-equipped to talk about it then. And I certainly do not feel anymore. Able to really talk about this this incredibly dense, uh, beautiful, difficult, like despairing film. But I, I mean, I can't wait to see it again. Uh, but it was, again, like a total just you know in a in a in a different league from everything else. Yes. Was in, and nobody else is working in this way. It was a different idea of cinema, yeah. um, and you know, I guess what the jury did it made some kind of sense, giving yeah, their own is, you know sort of special nice special of, Palm Door this year. Yeah.
0: There's something about Godard working in this particular mode, the Histoire du Cinema mode, where he's using, uh, reappropriating other clips from film history. There's something about this mode that um, I I don't know what it is, but I never find it particularly difficult to sit through. I, I would say, as much as I enjoyed Goodbye, goodbye to language, language, yeah, and as much as I enjoyed Film Socialisme, yeah those are films that can try the patience perhaps a bit more. Yeah, I feel like probably. in this mode, because of the way he's creating mm-hmm. these surprising connections between things, every time he cuts, you, you're you always excited to see what he's going to find next. You get the sense of him sifting through just, you know, you know decades and decades of film history. And it's always sort of invigorating and exciting. And what, that's what I liked about this. If this is his last film, we hope it isn't, but if it is, this kind of feels like, an invigorating ending, even yeah. though there is despair to it, because it's not just about cinema. It's, it's very much talking about
1: contemporary politics as well, yeah, our world specifically. But yeah, I agree with you about this. When he's in this essayistic mode, um, I mean, I, I don't think it's like difficult in the in in, in the same way as
2: you know maybe f- film social socialisme is. I feel like a lot of the work, Goodbye to the Language, film Socialisme being two cases in point, can kind of come apart a little bit in memory. Um, that's the way it's been for me. I don't mean to diminish the the work. I'm just saying it. he's a filmmaker who's always been about trying to make movies that reflect the work of trying to find, figure out how to fit things together, right? So, the, which is a tough thing to pull off. And I think that in Film socialismo, for instance, I found maybe... Some of the parts unequal the the whole shipboard section in the beginning of the film was absolutely stunning. the section with the family maybe a little bit less so but i i but still you know of all the work of a you know a masterful artist in this film it felt more compact it also felt i must say that there's something new that's present in this film and he you know one of the collaborators on this film is nicole bernese and she really i think i don't know what i just know that you know she jean paul batage i mean you know he has a core of people that he works really closely with and there's something different about this film the form of it that the, the it, it it feels more you know as dennis said i think despairing but it's almost like a pure... There's something about the whole movement of the movie rather than the parts that I found really bracing.
0: Um, and to move to another filmmaker who's, in a sense, also always potentially making his last film or his last film for a while based on you know the reality of the situation, that's Jafar Panahi. It's incredible, your lead-ups, Michael. You know, Dennis yeah, and are no, I just, you know, panting the suspense is amazing. Doing yeah. my best here. <laughs> yeah. I want you to... It's a <laughs> guessing game. You know these films it's better incredible. than Who could be possibly too. making their last film? Yeah. Um, Jafar Panahi is someone who, you know, had been under house arrest for a while and had been, been banned for making films in Iran yet he keeps on making films somehow. Yeah. And his latest film, Three Faces, even has some jokes about that. And at one point, his he's he's in the film himself and his, his mother calls and says, you're not, you're not making a film, are you? Yeah. And he promises, yeah. no, mom, I'm not making yeah. a film. It's very not funny. Yeah. Um, he's also a filmmaker who you never quite know what to expect. And his films always, they're very meta and they always kind of expand down to these different directions. Um, I always find them kind of exhilarating. I am one of, uh, he's one of those filmmakers that for me just, can do no wrong. I very much look forward to a Panahi film every time. I think this is a particularly strong one. So if you, if you could talk about Three Faces.
2: I think that, I mean, this is the fourth film made in exile. Clearly the filmmaking, you know, he's no longer making the film in his own house. You know, like this first, is not a the film. The
1: two b- b- were all yeah. like interiors, right? What were they called? Like, um, this, is this, is this is not a, a film. film and then closed, closed curtain, curtain closed or curtain. Or like entirely closed
2: Yeah. Closed. Then Taxi was not. So clearly he was able to leave the house, but he's not able to leave the country. And this is not a film, if I remember correctly, the movie had to be smuggled out on a drive, you know. In a cake or something. Yeah, that's right. Just like Oliver North, you know, with the Iran Contra. Um, But I think that um, with this film, I mean, it's a much more technically elaborate kind of movie. I mean, the, the transition from day to night is really stunning, uh, for instance, and the sound is incredible. So I think that there's, it, it's more out in the open that he's making films and, you know, that it, it, it's not a movie that you could smuggle out in a cake. <laughs> I mean, that's going to be on the poster. That seems, that seems to, you know, to be over. Nonetheless, he's, he's no longer, uh, he's still not allowed to leave the country. Um, but it's a very, it's a movie that really harks he had a connection to Abbas Kiarostami, who wrote Crimson Gold. Um, and you know, they were they, he obviously was was working in a kind of a dialogue with him. Um and I think that in this film he returns to that. There's something about the journey that's very close to um you know, and Life Goes On or Through the Olive Trees or, you know, any number of Kiarostami films, but also like all Panahi films, he gets very, very involved in, you know, the games of, you know, is it really Jafar Panahi himself or is he playing a version of himself or the people, you know, the real story, you know, reality, fiction, the film begins with a a suicide attempt you know recorded on a cell phone that may or not be may not be real and also he's always been ex, you know very focused on the uh, um situation for women in iran and this is one of the strongest of his films in in that sense um but in many other senses as well i think it's a an exquisite piece of work
0: yeah, I, the, the recent films, I and I, again, I like all of his recent films, but they feel very contained and sort of um, conceptual. Yeah. This one feels like it keeps opening up. Yeah, And I agree. it keeps changing what it is. I agree. Okay, another uh, shapeshifter, but I only know that because... I've heard you say it. I haven't seen it yet because I'm very excited about it. Is what am I going to talk about?
2: It's 14 hours long.
0: Oh, I was going to talk about Happy as Lazaro. Oh, okay. Oh, we can okay.
1: do that too. By Alice
0: Walker. We'll yeah. get to LaFleur in a second.
1: Okay. So many shapeshifters in this lineup. Yeah, uh, I know.
2: It's incredible. It's like a science fiction movie.
1: Happy as Lazaro is... Which is oh, a
2: terrible translation and I hate saying it. Yeah. Lazaro Felice is so... Much you know, more comes more so much the choice. Literally,
1: as a
0: title. <laughs> we'll happy say as Lazaro, Lazaro Felice. Lazaro but Felice. if you want to come see it, you'll have to find it you under H. Under, yeah,
1: <laughs> for Happy as Lazaro. Yeah. Um, it's Alice Rohwarker's third film, third feature. Right. Um, and we are very happy to say we've shown all three of them. We think yeah. she's one of the most, you know, talented. And distinctive, like young filmmakers working today. She was also our filmmaker in residence um, during and, the festival. And worked on two years the ago. Script for this yeah, film. worked on this film. Um, you know, was doing some writing when she was here. Yeah, um, yeah uh, a, a shapeshifter—that's mm. an accurate description. I, I think I don't think I would really—I don't really want to give away what happens because I think the film does something quite audacious yeah, halfway through. Um, and I think she's one of these. She's cultivated this really interesting tone in all her films. Like, you know, Kent, your description of Roma is like slightly magical. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Alicia has been sort of working with this. It's, it's a kind of magic realism. There's like a kind of very poetic naturalism that she works with. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of like realism that's open to the possibility of magic. Like, you know, And I think uh, this is a film that, that I think takes the biggest Leap into yeah. that realm. Um, in it's a, allegory. Into allegory. It has yeah, it's kind of a fable. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's set among these, uh, like a, what seems to be an extended family of tobacco farmers. You cannot really tell the time and place, it's sort of yeah. unclear for a while um they seem to be living in sort of feudal kind of
2: semi-feudal fe- life, yeah.
1: conditions but then there are like some things that point to it being uh, a relatively recent time yeah. um, because of what people are wearing and you know uh and and then something completely surprising happens in the middle of the film which i don't particularly mm. want to give away no. because i think it's uh I, but I think setting it's, shifts for setting a shifts way. um and it's 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 a bold and i would say like very kind of political gesture that 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 she pulls off i think beautifully
2: it's a gesture that it it's political but it's many things at the same time that's the thing about her films that i find so uh remarkable that she's working in a way that appears to be very simple focused on very simple things and then without realizing it when you're watching the film they o- open up and expand into something you know very grand um and 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 in the case of this film uh multi-layered
0: and i mean i felt that way watching the wonders i haven't seen this film yet but she also kind of as part of her process does she just kind of nestle in with the community and kind of really work with them and gets it because you get a, sen- you have a sense of work a sense of land a sense of people really kind of invested in. In their war, in their life in their situation, it just feels so yeah. lived in.
2: Mix of actors and non-actors, I yeah, think. I, I, so. mean, yeah. I think I mean, it's her, her yeah. sister Alba yeah, who yeah, has
1: been, you know, the in, greatest. Uh, yeah, who's a wonderful yeah. actress and is also in in this film. And and the lead actor, I have to say, is quite a find. Yeah. Lazaro himself, um, who I I think is a non-actor, you know, and I think also what she's doing it connects to the the tradition of. The very rich tradition of Italian cinema of you know working with with non actors of course going going back to Italian neorealism but mm-hmm. I think there is something of the spirit of, Mike Pasolini in this film some yeah. of his films I think you know you 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 can detect that maybe Ar- Armando Olmi Olmi, Olmi you know, too yeah. um, so I, I think it's uh it's and I think there is a a movement in the maybe not in the mainstream of Italian cinema but other filmmakers like people like Pietro Marcello um, who we've sh- shown in new directors and Alessandro Comedin, who are working in this mode sort of like slightly hybrid films um, you know films that deal with, like, the intersection of, like, documentary and, and allegory and myth. Um, and I think she's sort of part of that um, generation as well. It's
2: good to see Italian cinema actually reconnecting with the, yeah, absolutely. the strongest, yeah. you know, yeah. roots. Because, I mean, it comes, you know, I mean, neorealism's is one of the miracles in the cinema history. and I, it, I do, you know, I do think that also in other countries it's hard... Uh, in the United States, it's so difficult to make a film with non-actors. <laughs> it's really hard yeah. because you really have to, you know, do it underground if you're going to do it. And um, I think that, you know, for her, for European filmmakers, it's a great, it's an amazing thing to be able to work with non-actors and and to um, get them working the way that she does. It's it's quite miraculous.
0: Ready for a transition. Uh-oh. Okay. Um, well, LaFleur definitely works with actors. <laughs> <laughs> in a lot of different registers. really good, Michael. So let's go over to that. That's um, I know you wanted to touch on that. That's Mariano Iñas, who directed, some people may recall, Historias Extraordinarias, yeah. a really wonderful film from a few years ago. A you mere
2: could, four and a half hours You alone. could do it all in one sitting. You yeah. could. It's
0: possible. You could do this all in one you sitting, too. You could
2: do too. this could all you? in one sitting, but it's 14 well, hours. Know.
0: You couldn't I mean, you at the New York film Festival, yeah. because it's being split up. So why don't you all not only tell us <laughs> what it is, but how people how can watch it. it?
1: Yeah, I think the fact that we're even, you know, that there are even different ways to see it, uh, sort of points to how, how radical and crazy this film is and what he's doing. I mean, it's a 14-hour film that has, at most of its screenings so far, been broken up into three parts of about four to five hours each. So we're doing that over three nights towards the end of the festival, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of the second week of the festival. Um, but we're also showing it in eight parts, um, shorter parts, uh, like sort of feature length chunks um, as matinee screenings at three o'clock starting on the first Monday of the festival. So um, you have two ways of seeing LaFleur. Um this is um Mariano's first film in ten years. Um actually Stories Extraordinarias was was made ten years ago. And this is what he's been working on since. I mean it it is um it is a as you say, a film about acting, um, about storytelling, um, about the possibilities of narrative, about the history of cinema and cinematic genres. Um Mariano himself shows up at the start of the film to sort of explain what it is that you're about to see, um, and he describes it as six episodes. So he, as he, as he describes it at the beginning, there are four episodes that don't have endings, one that is self-contained, and uh, the last one that doesn't have a beginning. And they're all in very distinct genres. Sure. Uh, some of them are very recognizable, like very commercial, very schlocky genres. Even the first one is like a, a mummy. mummy movie, yeah. like a B B movie style, um, sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, homage to the to to that to that genre, um, and then a sort of musical uh, yeah. mystery, a spy thriller, which is. A good five hours, Like that's I think part three itself, is an, a massive five-hour chunk in the middle of the film. Um, and then the, the sections after that become progressively more, I would say, sort of eccentric and free uh, as the film progresses. But the first three parts of it are films that are very much in conversation with uh, cinematic genres. Um, all of them but one, this one episode in which the actors don't appear, but all of them star the same four actresses who are absolutely remarkable uh in in the film. And it's 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 um you know it's these are his close collaborators who developed the project with him and who devoted a huge amount of time. I mean they, you know I think I think they all worked on other other projects, but this is this labor of love and like and kind of madness in a way that they committed to for for ten years. And I think it's a film to see in a cinema. Uh, and I feel like it's it's there's something about long films that are experienced in a cinematic setting in a communal setting that mm-hmm. I think is you know it's whether it's like Bellatar or or Rivette or La Diaz or whatever I think there is something that happens collectively uh, and I, I, I highly recommend that people watch La Floor uh, that way you know and also on the subject of duration I think it's not it's not like a long film that is it's not a La Diaz style. Film. I mean, it's not a Bellatar film. Right. It's not. It's not what people call. I hate this term. Slow cinema. Uh, you know, it is. It is very, very much the opposite of that. It is uh, action packed. It is ridiculously entertaining and, um, and very densely plotted, mm. metafictional at, at various points. Like he experiments with like different ways of framing stories, uh, different ways of telling stories, uh, and it's. It's exciting. I mean, it, it was um, a film that we 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 watched in, you know, in the thick of programming when we're watching like a lot mm-hmm. um, on a daily basis. And for me, putting this on, I, I watched it over three days. was like was was an absolute joy, and I'm really excited for people to to experience it.
0: And and in the description, some people might think, "Oh, that sounds like an anthology film. Like I can just pick it up and put it down. It's it's a film that needs to be watched. It's I hard in order." I don't
1: actually know if you need to watch it in sequence. To be honest. Um, That would be a
2: question for the director, almost. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how... That would be a question I would be interested in asking the director.
1: Given the disparate lengths, it it doesn't make it easy, I think, in terms of, like, you know... You know, it's confusing. There's, like, three parts and then six episodes, but they don't map over... I actually think it might, I think part one might be two episodes. Part two might be. Well, I think part so one
2: is think. two episodes. It's yeah. been a while. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, Mariano's coming himself for a talk, so we can. He ask is coming. Him
1: we're not doing. We're not doing any Q and A's because this has already been reported, so it's not a spoiler. In fact, I think he'll probably announce this before the screening. The credit sequence is forty minutes, uh, at the very end of part three. So um, and that'll end pretty late. So what we're going to do is we're going to have one of our director's dialogues is going to be with him, Mm -hmm. which, and we've, we've, we've scheduled it at five o'clock on the last Friday of the festival. And that will be after the matinee screenings wrap up and just before the part three screening um, in the evening. So uh,
0: yeah. Um, I also wanted to touch upon a couple of films from China that we're showing this festival that we really need to touch upon because these are some really important filmmakers. One uh, one is kind of starting out. Mm-hmm. I bet This is his second film. That's Be Gone. And then there's Zha Zhanka, of course, mm-hmm. who's probably the most important Chinese filmmaker working today. So if you could talk about Ash's... So family tour. We can throw that in. There's oh, and a family, family tour, tour yeah, yeah. right. Ying yeah. Liang. Um So yeah, let's touch upon Ash's Purest White,
2: Long Day's Journey Tonight, and A Family Tour. Ash's Purest White... Chia I mean, his reputation precedes him. He's, he's, you know, for anyone who's interested in this festival, you know, he's a regular and he's a regular because he's a great, great filmmaker. Um, he was great when he started. He's great now. You yep. know? Um, you know, <laughs> yes. What, it was 20 years ago when he made Wu,
1: right? Yeah, I think exactly 20 years ago. Um,
2: or 21 or something like That's that. You know, so it's just like, you know... he's started with a bang, and the bang keeps getting louder. And he changed, you know, at this point in his filmmaking career, he has, um, for uh, a few films, two films, he was making, he was in a kind of a documentary fiction hybrid mode with 24 City and... and. Um, Knew or I, wish I wish I knew. I, knew. I wish, I, wish I, knew. I knew. And with um, touch of sin, mountains may depart, and with ashes purest white, he's shifted into a kind of a melodramatic mode. There are three very different films. Um, in a way, uh, ashes purest white builds from mountains may depart. Um, it has that kind of feeling. It also builds from still life. Um, and
1: unknown pleasures too, in a way. Yeah, it's sort of a retrospective work in a way. It Looking is. back at some of his own, you know, other films.
2: It is. It's and it's interesting because it and also as always, you know, um his wife is 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 very much um the center of the film. She's her performance in this particular film I think is absolutely so remarkable. Good, so great. Remarkable. Yeah. But also he's working with Eric Gautier. Yeah. The DP in this movie. A great DP. And his usual d p u lio is also great, But b- working with a new d p and one as good as Eric really gives something new i think to the yeah. film
1: I just think it's it's so easy to take like you know, great filmmakers for granted in a way because yes, you know, it was yet another great film by jejanka yeah. and I, i'm not sure if people, this film even really got its due in in, in cannes this year and yeah. for me was this was for me it was the best film there um i think and 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 I think it's um you know, Kent's point about how he's moved into like a sort of more working with with genre and melodrama in the Mm -hmm. last three films in ways that I think are really bold and exciting and moving. Um, And I think, you know, the Mm -hmm. first, maybe first 10 years of his career, you could say it was like more of a realist filmmaker, you know, working with like social realism. And I think he's sort of, as somebody who's sort of, I, I think is always revisiting, um, rethinking what he can do with cinema I think in a way sensing the limits of that and working with genre in really really creative ways um, this is I think I think it's actually one of his best films um, yeah and I think
2: it is a successful film The Mountains May Depart
1: and I think it's Zhao Tao's greatest Mm -hmm. performance and I think again he has you know he's a filmmaker who has a lot to say about China Today,
2: about China, about being alive right now in the world, about you know, change, how it happens, about um, on, you know, on a personal level or in the world around you, and how the change in the world around you affects you on a personal level. It's just he's a very he's 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 a very uh, he's very alive to everything that's happening around him, I think. Yeah, I mean,
0: Mountains Made Part is a good example of a film that. There may have been parts of it that weren't as successful as others, mm. but overall, he's so persuasive at dramatizing the monumental shifts yeah. in the world that, that that you come away with a with a kind of a a, a, a grand sense of things. You know, there there are some yeah. things, about my, my, like chapter three of Mount, Mountains Made Apart, for example, has a lot of awkwardnesses. Yeah, narratively, think there, I think you
1: admire the the leap that he takes. Exactly, you know, yeah. To, uh, to, To imagine a near future and i think this this question of time is interesting too because now he's he's always been like this sort of like you know present tense director like you know china today kind of you know you you get a sense of like what the the changes that are happening especially with his first few films um but he's going back to what he did with platform just like looking back at a period of time like a pretty you know ashes purest white spans what like 15 years 20 years something like that um it starts in it's it spans the entire so. 21st century yes. so far something right. like that right, right, right. you know and i think for him just like looking back um creates like a it's a different tone in a way there's something yeah. a little bit more um it's, it's it's
2: uh well he's always been like that though i mean you know for instance with 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 platform yeah yeah you know i yeah. mean uh, he's he's always been attentive to
1: shifts in time the experience of time yeah. the passage of time yeah I think it's, I, I think it's his, one of his saddest films. I think it's also yeah. one of his funniest films. So I think it's... Uh, it's yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm very excited to see it finally. Um, same as Long Day's Journey Into Night, which is a film that is um, <laughs> part 3D, correct?
1: The second half of it is 3D. It's not shot in 3D. It was post-converted to 3D. And
2: the audience is signaled. That it is time for them to put on 3D glasses in a very... It, the, opening t- the opening title card just just says, you know... But it says you're going to be yeah. invited to yeah. put on your 3D glasses during the movie. You'll know when. You'll know when. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really nice the way that he does it.
1: And the 3D shot is... It is a single shot. I mean, that is maybe even more important than the fact that it's in 3D. It is this elaborately choreographed single uh, shot, which will come as no surprise to people who've seen Kylie blues which had an extraordinary sequence uh, in the middle of it um, which is also this amazing uh sort of traveling shot yeah begun is one of the most exciting young talents he's not I think he turned 30 this year um he's already made two remarkable films wow.
2: yeah no I mean it's it's um a tour de force you know I mean there's no other way to put it but it's also um a film that's Let's say related in some way, particularly in the first pre three D section of the movie, to um, Wong Kar Wai. Um, a
1: little Wong Kar Wai, a little Hosha Ho Shen. Yeah, it reminded
2: me a lot more of Wong Kar Wai, mm-hmm. just because you're so immersed in the textures yeah. and a lot of the um, the dialogue. Yeah, sounds very close. definitely. Yeah, yeah. this uh, sense of dream. And yes, dream.
1: but also like you know, you could say Lynch or Tarkovsky yes you know, um, and uh, I think there's something quite even though it's referential I think it's a very kind of mo- modern kind of referentiality yeah. there's something um
2: it doesn't feel referential it just feels like it's in that vein there's uh, something that's related without making a big, mm. a big I think he's
1: overtly it. referential I mean he calls you know Long Day's Journey into not, I mean and I think there's all kinds of there's like a there's like a, a shot that literally references stalker in the film with the yeah. water oh, yeah, with the yeah, glass yeah. of water on the true. table you know and i i think there's something kind of um he's, he's this this sort of like 21st century cinephile who's you know seen seen everything but absorbed it and synthesized it in a completely surprising way
0: yeah you know? yeah and then the third film that we were going to talk about a family tour sounds like it has connections perhaps even to Panahi. It's about, a f- it's f- yeah, made f- by a filmmaker in exile.
1: Great connections. There you go. Mm. I'm here for. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, Ying, Ying Liang, it's his first time uh, in the festival. Um, and he's been working in exile. Uh, he's been living working in exile for about five years now, I think, since his last film. Yeah, he's been living in exile since 2012 when he made his last film, which was called When Night Falls. And uh, this is a very autobiographical film. It's a film about um, a filmmaker uh, a female filmmaker in in, in, in the film uh, reuniting with her mother, her ailing mother. The filmmaker is unable to return to China so they meet in Taiwan um, and they're on these like separate tours and it's a very it's a very precise very delicate um, film that, you know, where I think the personal situation of the characters is rendered very movingly, but also I think it's a film that has, uh, is is really interesting and the, intricate in terms of um, how, it, how it maps out the political complexities. I mean, it's a film in which literally, like, the personal is political. Is you yeah, know, is sort of the point of this film. And it's very quietly intense. Yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about
0: um, the slight, perhaps, Ho Shao Shen influence yeah. on be gone. I was thinking about a, a, a sort of surprising Hosh influence, I thought, while watching Barry Jenkins' If Bill Street Could Talk, which I saw just recently up at TIFF, and I was really quite taken with. I think it's a beautiful film. This, of course, is his Barry Jenkins follow-up to Moonlight. There's a pretty incredible scene um, in the middle of the film with um, the actor Brian Tyree Henry from Atlanta, um, in which he's at the kitchen table talking to the main character about his experiences as an incarcerated black man in America. And the camera just kind of drifts across this incredibly moody kind of kitchen mindscape. Um, in the apartment then, in the village.
2: Right? Yeah.
0: yeah. And it just, it, and then I recalled, Oh yes, of course, Barry Jenkins was here at the film society and he, presented, I think, th- was three times his Haosha Shen yep. choice. He's, yep. He talks a lot about Claire Denis and Haosha Shen and, and Wong kar Wai filmmakers that he's been influenced by, and I very strongly felt that while watching this very beautiful James Baldwin adaptation.
1: Yeah, I think you were much... I, again, I think this is like what I was saying about Be Gun. I think Barry is a total cinephile who, like, I think he, he knows a lot. Um, he watches a lot, and I think he's somebody who's absorbed all these influences. Um, and I think they... They emerge in sort of surprising ways in in all his all his work. It's interesting to
2: think about this film in in terms of you know what would he do after Moonlight, you know, and for him to tackle the adaptation of this particular novel, I think is um, pretty meaningful. And to, um, I mean, you know, he really y- yes, you can feel the Cinefel connections, but also the the just the connection to the Baldwin material itself is intense the the relationship between the filmmaker and the material that he's adapting. You know, I think that the movement of the film is, is, um, yeah, it's a movie that's like looking square in the face of, you know, racism, how it works, how it's institutionalized, how it plays out, how it's, you know, since it's specific to the seventies, the problem of like mass incarceration and plea bargaining and, you know, all that stuff, but also, you know, obviously it's, it's related very much to right now and, you know, um, movingly so. And also very, very much
0: about, um, this love between these two people. And it's actually surprisingly on top of all that, it's a surprisingly sexy film. It actually manages to balance all this together. I was very taken with the romantic aspect of the film and the way that He uses light shadow color to kind of bring out that... um, I wouldn't call it melodrama. It's not really Cirquean, but it's a a colorful film about love and emotion and tragedy. It's
2: between people, that's for sure. You know, I think that the two of them, it's a lover's bond, but it's also a a bond of the spirit. And I think that um, between, you know, father and daughter, husband and wife... Um, friends, you know the two fathers of of the two you know um, young people who are getting married. Um, it's uh, that's what the film's all about: the intensity of the bonds between people and how they're stretched so taut, but they don't quite break. That's you know what the that's the heart of the movie.
0: Yeah, he's looking at us right through the camera because he often has the characters look directly at the lens. Yes, and it's um, I don't know. I found it sort of. Amazingly moving. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, as I mentioned a second ago, Barry Jenkins is a huge Claire Denis fan. Maybe Claire Denis' number one fan. <laughs> Boy, Michael, you we are. We can't not talk about. firing them all cylinders. <laughs> That's great. We can't not talk about High Life, which I also not. just saw. Which,
2: <laughs> Why would we want to not talk about High Life?
0: So Claire Denis' film, a <laughs> sci-fi film. I suppose, a sci-fi film of a sort with Robert Pattinson, Julia Pinoche is back (laughs) with Claire Denis after last year's Let the Sunshine In, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, maybe the best movie of the year still. Uh, This was quite an experience. I'm going to let you guys talk about it.
2: I mean, she's been trying to make it for a while. It's a movie that she herself would hesitate to refer to as science fiction, but of course it is. I mean, it's about a group of you know death row convicts who are placed on a spaceship headed for a black hole um for the and they're on the spaceship headed for the black hole with the purpose of possibly harnessing the energy of black holes but you know the special effects in the film are at a bare minimum um and what the film really is is a movie about Claire herself refers to it as a family movie, which is interesting. Uh, Meaning, you know, how family, you know, it's a group of people who are not related familially with one exception, father and daughter. Um, But it's about, you know, how people form a family and all the violence and the intensity and the the tenderness and the lust and the hatred and everything that happens in the kind of incubator.
1: And when you put it that way, obviously then there are many like Obvious connections to her other films.
2: Yes, absolutely. She's an absolutely singular, remarkable artist, and you know this film is just so concentrated in its in its um, intensity and in the intensity of its tenderness. You know, I mean, the scenes between Robert Pattinson, who's incredible in the film, I agree, amazing. Um, yeah, everybody is, but
1: yeah, concentrated is the word. I think. I mean, it's so like purposeful, like every, from the very first shot, you know, you're in the hands of like, just a master filmmaker who knows exactly what she's doing moment to moment. And that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I love I I love Claire in this in this mode. You know, I mean, I you know, it's it's nice to see her do different kinds of films, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, this is a I think a mode that maybe harks back to the Intruder, The, the Intruder, or Trouble Every Day. And I feel like there's a mm. there's something for me, like especially thrilling about about watching her work this way. This sort of.
2: Yeah, also I, I'm I've always been lost in admiration for her ability to handle time. And so the way that time moves forward in this film is, you know, staggering. I mean, you just never, the gaps, the ellipses between, you know, there's no sense of, of linear time, really. You're you're in some different kind of temporal universe in this movie.
0: Yeah, I was constantly destabilized watching it in a in really profound way and and as you're saying by concentration it also it keeps you so attuned to every single thing that happens in every moment that it almost you don't get that you don't in a good way you don't get a sense of like a traditional arc traditional narrative arc even though when you take a step back and look at back what you've seen you you see what what was happening um but also because of that it just it it went by so fast when that movie was over i said that was a feature-length film i couldn't believe it because i was so attuned to everything And I, yeah, I agree with you. This I, I don't. I love all of her. Well, I love almost all of her things. This was this was my favorite since Lone True yeah. Intruder. Yeah. I, I the, the tactility of it, and 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 without giving away anything really, uh, there is this first act that mostly focuses on Robert Pattinson and a baby. Yes, which is, is amazing. That is so remarkable. Amazing. I don't really know how she pulled it off yeah. in terms of just the filmmaking and the performances. Well. Dedication. <laughs> She's just like she gets what she needs. So work a genius, that's yeah. for sure. We have a lot of films in the main slate. We obviously can't touch on all of them. We have thirty films in the oh, main no. slate. Oh my god! So,
2: um, well, there are there are two films by Hong Sang su There are, and you know, we've what been, is a prize? <laughs> second, I love, year a I love them all. I love them all, but what is a surprise! For the second year in a row, there are two films by Hong <laughs> Sang su <laughs> But exactly. for every year, for the last few years, we've shown a film by Hong Sang Soo, and that's. Because Hong Sang-soo is a great filmmaker and Con- always surprising,
1: continually surprising, mm. which is amazing when somebody's making two or three films a year. It was mm. re- he's not joining us this year, I assume, because he's already working on the next three more film, films. But yeah. um, it was he's really probably. great to have him here last year and to hear him talk about this, his process in extremely concrete terms. Yeah. You know, he was like, "I have a date, and I have a location, and I have a budget." and I write every morning, and I figure mm-hmm. it out, and the form comes together. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's an amazing model, I think, for like, you know, to, to just work with the bare minimum. Um,
2: yeah, uh, I mean, and he, on the one hand, it puts you in mind of, you know, Weber writing with a 12-tone row, mm-hmm. and rearranging Absolutely, yeah. notes, and, you know, um, and, and uh, or on the other hand, it's it's not a film that I like very much, but you know, um, Rob Grier made this film, The Man Who Laughs, is it? The, uh, the, uh, the Man Who Lies, The Man Who Lies. And, but he worked with the same, the soundtrack has like 16 sounds that are just repeated over and over again in endless permutations. But in when you think of Hong sang Su's work, you think of like pathways, bars, restaurants, mm-hmm. outsides of bars and restaurants. Sure. Um, you know staircases up and downstairs in small apartment buildings they seem identical but then there's an endless series of permutations Mm -hmm. because the films all kind of talk to each other yeah Um, and I think uh, this
1: is an especially like lovely pair too they're both set in like these confined more or less spaces like one is in a cafe and one is in a hotel and they're both black and white Um, but they're I think they're quite different in structure again like Intricate, subtle, uh, and you know, as you say, they're kind of formalist films. But they're, they're the. I think he's also gotten to the point where they're also like deeply emotional. You yeah. Know? And I I, 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 think that's the case with with both of them this year. Oh, again.
2: Yeah. I mean, starting with Tale of Cinema, yeah. I think almost that's the movie where he really started to, because they're not formalist. In fact, they're actually he's experimenting with storytelling and different ways of storytelling. Um, he's a real, he's, a, he's one of the cinema's great storytellers. So before we move on
0: from uh, main slate, anything else you want to give a quick shout out to? Oh, um, yeah. man.
2: Unmissable. It's oh, everything It's all else. unmissable. It's all that, unmissable. That, well, I don't think we've touched on... Uh, Ray and Liz. Well, I mean, you you know.
1: Yeah. We haven't have touched on so many films, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. you go, Ray and Liz. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, Ray and Liz is the first feature film by Richard Billingham, the photographer who's been involved primarily with documenting the world that he grew up in, his parents, you know, his family and the people around his family. And I found it absolutely staggering, like every second of it, because it's so acute, the way that it just, he takes what is obviously remembered life and he just puts it, enacts it, reenacts it on the screen or revivifies it, I guess would be the, a better word because every episode is made up of very small interactions between people and gesture for gesture and, you know, every article of clothing, every single object in every room. And what's amazing about it is that it's a very, very, very bleak story that doesn't feel bleak at all part I mean it does in some kind of cumulative way, but it's so alive in all of its details that um, and also it's it's unassuming you know as the narrative is happening you know the characters themselves the little boy is not quite aware of what's happening until mm-hmm. it's basically pointed out to him but um, like we don't want to give too much away about it but boy what a movie mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, this is Billingham's first feature, even though he's had a a long career as a a photographer. Um, But I think I just want to point out that we have quite a few, uh, not necessarily first-time filmmakers, but filmmakers who are in this main slate for the first time. You know, Ryosuke Hamaguchi, who we had new directors with Happy Hour, this like amazing expansive uh, drama about the lives of four j- Japanese women. Um, and this is a pretty different film um, about like um, an obsessive love that. It's a film that also I think can surprise me moment to moment, and we have and uh, that's called Asako One and Asako One and two, and two. Sorry, and um, we also have. Well, we should talk about Transit though, because Petzold, I think that's
2: Transit. It's a I think it's one of film. the
1: great films in the fastest one of the great films of the year for yeah. me. Uh, yeah,
2: it's an incredible film. It's uh, because it's a film that happens. It's based on a novel written by Anna cigar It was you know that's about about. Uh, uh, you know the refugee trail during World War Two, and it takes place in two tenses. I mean, you know, you're in World War Two, you're in the '40s, and you're also in right now, and it's both things at the yeah, same time. Yeah,
1: it's like a, 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 he's adapting this historical novel, but he's, it's it's filmed in present day Marseille with, and um, yeah. it's such an elegant and also like complicated like sleight of hand that like creates this amazing effect. Um, yeah, which is um, you know, and he's I think. In his own way, I think as a filmmaker who's really dealt with um, political questions in, in, in subtle ways, subtle and oblique ways, and I think I, I think he's doing that again here. Yeah. And we're also doing. I want to plug uh, our uh, a, I, I hope complete Christian Petzl retrospective in November, December, um, where we'll be showing a lot of his television films, which are difficult to see, and uh, uh, we'll be opening the film next year.
2: Uh, Private Life by Tamara Jenkins is. An amazing film. It's the film that actually opened the Sundance Film Festival. Um, it's it's a slightly different version. She's worked on it since then. But, you know, it's a movie that's about middle-class Manhattan Manhattanite Bohemians, you know, played by Paul Giamatti and Catherine Hahn, who are trying desperately to have a baby. It feels extremely autobiographical, but it also, and and lived in, but it also um, is a film that uh, really, I mean, that feels like old territory, but it kind of isn't in this movie. It feels, you know, like she's made it like it's completely her own. Um, It's really grounded in, in, in a world that she knows as she knows it. And it's a film that's very funny and moving at the same time.
1: And unsentimental.
2: Very unsentimental from start to finish. Burning by Li Cheng Dong is a ferocious piece of work. Great movie. Um, Cover story, film comment for September, October. Also, um, we're doing a tribute to Pierre Rissant, who who passed away right before this year's Cannes Film Festival, and that was really the last film that he championed Um, Burning. That's the film that he really loved. The last email I ever got from Pierre was about that movie.
1: Alex Ross Perry's *Her Smell* mm-hmm. um, was back in the festival after *Listen Up, Philip*. We had a few yeah. years ago, and mm-hmm. this is if, maybe his best film. I would okay. certainly his most ambitious film. Yeah, um, it is, is certainly. It has and. an extraordinary performance by Elizabeth Moss yeah. at its center. Yeah. you saw this one in Toronto.
0: I did. Yeah, I and I have spoken of it a bit on the uh, film comment podcast. All right. So, um, not to go too much into it again, but I, I agree. I think it's his best film. Yeah, that I've yeah. seen so far I think it's um, it's he's he's at least teasing at redemption it's teasing. very in, it's interesting well you the, no, the, really, the last
2: act is oh, no. I think quite that's, extraordinary that's where the title comes into play actually because you <laughs> for a lot of the movie you're kind of like oh, why did he call it that and then you know at the, at the very very last moment of the movie you understand why and it turns the film on its head actually um, um, I was I, I think it's way. a
0: movie that is purposefully antagonistic and it's going to potentially send some viewers to the exits. I think that they should stick with it because um, it's an intense experience that has a, an, an arc that is not necessarily visible for the first two, uh, three acts. And um, it takes a turn that I think makes it incredibly moving.
2: Yeah, it's comprised of, what, six long, very lengthy five, scenes, yeah. five very lengthy scenes. Um, it's very impressive. Yeah, no, it is.
0: And, and, and a good, great cast all around. Not Elizabeth yeah, Moss, of course, like. is always wonderful, but um, I was
2: kind of amazed by the cast. Um, um, Faithful Man by Lou Garel. We've regularly shown his father's films. This is Lou Garel's second feature as a director, but it's, I think, kind of a, it's a more ambitious film than the first. It's just as compact something about the way that he and Jean-Claude his co-screenwriter, who also co-wrote At Eternity's Gate, work with the screenplay, it's, the characters have this kind of like crazy, pathological craziness about them, um, which is, it's it's another form of magic realism. That's, you know, a different, a different uh, kind of magic realism from Appiah's Lazaro, but I think it's a very funny movie and also quite moving. Another
0: uh, French film that I enjoyed a lot was Sorry Angel, which is mm-hmm. uh, Christophe Honoré, his new film. I can't say that I always love Christophe Honoré's films, but I think this one this one's sticking with me. Um there's something very kind of it moves to its own rhythms, um, very unpredictable film, even though it's about things that you might think you've seen a million times in the movies. It's, it's a kind of like a, it's a love story between two men, but it's like an off on again, off again love. It spans the 90s. It deals with AIDS. But I, I think the way that it deals with all of those touchstones of gay dramas is, is very different. I enjoyed it very much. Now I feel bad that we <laughs> almost touch on all the movies. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, would, I feel well, bad that if there yeah. were a handful of films other, we didn't talk anything
1: about. Anything we did, they're all really good too. <laughs> they're all really good.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs by the Coen Brothers. <laughs> I was going to do that. Was, all now gonna be a really <laughs> surprising movie. You know, it's like it was, you know a series of discrete episodes that seems like you know a bunch of a, a different western stories, but then it, it's woven together really into something quite remarkable.
0: I've I've seen that twice now, and um, I was I was I was sort of amazed by it the first time, but the second time I I saw just how it all works. I I really don't think they can be taken separately. I think each one only functions as develops on the last thing that you saw. And I also think that the Coen brothers are not filmmakers. One would normally say uh, they're political filmmakers or want to be um, noticed as saying anything political, but this movie has a couple episodes that you cannot mistake as anything but Trump Mm -hmm. episodes. Mm -hmm. Trump commentary mm-hmm. and of course in that in that kind of exaggerated despairing Cohen way but I found it incredibly moving especially the second time it also has
2: James Franco delivers one of the funniest lines I've ever heard you know in a movie um, it's a single word but you know when he's on the gallows it's just like one of the great Cohen brothers moments it's true
0: and then yeah. but that there's that Cohen thing that happens where you just saw something hilarious and what that next chapter with Liam Neeson yeah. is going kind to of steal that laughter right yeah. away
2: that's some powerful stuff. Yep. I would love to move on to... I think, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a very strong slate. Olivier Asias' film, Shoplifters by Hero Kazukori Eda. It's, you know, in my room. These are... It's a really strong slate this year.
0: It's, it's really exciting. And, of course, the New York Film Festival is not just the main slate. We have all these different sections. Um, just very briefly, I know, Dennis, you're very involved in Projections. Yes. And anything specific you want to give a shout out? with That's, of course, the. Well, I, 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 I will not call it experimental.
1: No, you can call it experimental. <laughs> <laughs> we no, used to um, call it experimental. We, uh, no, it used. Well, it used to be called use in the avant-garde," um, and then you know we've we've tried to not use words that I think have specific suggest specific um, genres or have like specific like connotations of a type of film because the whole point of projections is that we are sort of thinking about what experimentation might mean. Um, and I think there are different ways to experiment. Um, you know, and, 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 and I think that comes across in the slate this year because we have narrative films and we have documentaries and we have works that could be considered experimental simply because they're like abstract, um, you know, works, um, non-narrative works. Um, and, uh, this year, we're opening with a pretty crazy satirical film by Daniel Schmidt and Gabriel Abrantes called Diamantino. That was um, one of the prize winners in in Cannes. This year, um, we've also shown Gabriel and Daniel's films um, as part of a group retrospective that we did a couple of years ago. And they also work with Benjamin Crotty and Alex Carver. We also have Work by Ted Fend, whose previous film we showed in uh, New Directors' Short Stay. This is uh, his new feature, Classical Period, a very droll, um, kind of unusual. I guess you can call it a comedy. It's quite a funny film in yeah. a way. Uh, and you know, we have two filmmakers who have been in the main slate of the festival: Albert Sarah, Albert Sarah, and Simon Liang, mm-hmm. um, with works that are much more. Both <laughs> of whom actually have been working in the gallery space in recent years, and and these are two. Uh, rather more experimental works by them. Um, and yeah, and then we have six short programs as well, um, including, you know, regulars like Ben Rivers, Skyho Pinka, Sylvia Shuttlebauer, Mary Helena Clark, a lot of people who will be familiar to projections attendees, but also a few uh, first-timers that we're very excited about.
0: Uh, and Kent, you had briefly touched upon uh, the retrospective section because part of that this year is a tribute to Pierre Rissant, but there's also a Dan Talbot tribute as well.
2: Yeah, in addition to three documentaries, Margaret von Trotta's film about Ingmar Bergman, that she made with her son, Gaston Solnitsky's film about Hans Horch, um, who ran the Biennale and passed away very suddenly last year, and um, a film about uh, Awaski Boishe, cinema pioneer. But yeah, there are tributes to Pierre and Dan, both of whom passed away within the last year, both of whom were just absolutely central figures in film culture peer in international film culture, Dan as well, but Dan was the man who brought New Yorker films into being and, you know, who ran Lincoln Plaza and the Cinema Studio before that, the Metro before that, the New Yorker before that. I mean, he was just the guy who who really brought everyone from, you know, Fassbender to the Straubs to Vendors to, you know, My Dinner with Andre to, you know, just movie after movie after movie came to these shores thanks to Dan Talbot.
0: Um, and before we wrap up, just want a, a quick shout out to the spotlight and documentary section, which is very robust this year. I mean, there's a four-hour Watergate documentary.
2: There's Roger Ailes. There's <laughs> there's a lot of uh, lovely Errol people. Errol Morris's Portrait of Steve Bannon, um, which is you know one of the most cinephilic of the films that we're showing. Let's just say <laughs> Steve Bannon is a real cinephile, and we'll leave <laughs> Don't it at that. normalize him. God. Well, anyway, you know.
0: We will not normalize him. Yeah. Um, well, I'm even more excited than I was before. Thank you very much for programming these films and for talking about them. And the festival starts on September 28th. It runs till October 14th here at Film Society Lincoln Center. That whole time? That whole yeah. time. Okay. It's not a short festival, no. actually. But it's and packed with, every day is
2: packed with something great. It's true. Yeah. So thank you very much. Thanks, Michael.
0: The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you.